Turn uh, with me to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. And we're going to be in verse 9. We're going to be jumping around uh, here and there because I want to reserve Isaiah 58. It fits really well with Freedom Sunday. And so we're going to be jumping around the next couple of weeks, but we're going to cover all of Isaiah, and we're going to finish up uh, hopefully here with, uh, within the fall, um, early part of October probably, and then we're going to get into Ephesians, which I'm really, really excited about. Well, it is a stark realization for every one of us in this room that are parents. The day that we realize that we are being watched. Eyes glued to our every move, ready to pounce upon the slightest imperfection. It seems that we will never ever get a chance to step away from the gaze of these watchers. Who are these sinister creatures I speak about? They are our very own children. Dun, dun, dun. Now you in this audience that may not be parents, you might think, well, good thing that's not me, but realize that our children are watching you as well. It is true, though, for those of us who are parents in the room, you might remember that point where your child started to mimic everything you do. You remember that? Raise your hand if you remember that. Yeah. It was a harsh reality. Our children are watching our every move. For some things, it's fantastic. It's great. I remember the first time one of my sons, John, three years old at the time, he saw me sitting on the, uh, the couch doing my morning devotions and saw me with my Bible open. And this is why it's important, parents, to not be on your iPad or your phone because the kids can't distinguish if you're playing Angry Birds or reading your Bible. And so he went and he got his Bible and he came and sat down next to me even though he couldn't read it and we did our daily devotions together. Now that makes me sound really holy, doesn't it? Right. For kids, following Christ zealously is often more caught than taught. But then there are the bad things too. There is the day that I looked around in our kitchen. I saw only my wife and my three-year-old daughter. And so I thought I was safe to flirtatiously hug my wife and say to her, hey, hot stuff. But next thing I know, my three-year-old is grabbing both of our legs and saying to us with a giant smile in her munchkin voice, hey, hot stuff. (laughs) Oh boy. It keeps us honest, doesn't it? It is a truth that exists throughout humanity. This is the truth that we're looking at today. As the leaders go, so go the followers. Now you might look at this and you say, anyone who's ever played Simon Says knows this is true, right? As the leaders go, so go the followers. Uh, But the Bible speaks about it this way. It says, and it shall be like people, like priest. Like people, like priest. Or as the leaders go, so go the followers. As we look at our text this morning, we will be introduced to this idea in stark fashion as the irresponsible leaders of Israel, of Judah, are taken to task by Isaiah for their horrific leadership and its effect on the people. Now remember that Judah had been called by God. They had a job, a mission, to be a light and beacon to the world around them, to reflect who Yahweh was by the way they lived life, and to show how much he loved them and wanted them to be his own. But they had become apathetic in their worship, and they mixed in idolatry from the surrounding nations. So much so that they started to look a lot like the surrounding nations, and Babylon eventually took them into captivity. And it was their leaders that were supposed to keep them guided towards holiness and righteousness. But often they enabled and emboldened the rebellious nature of the people without even realizing it. In the midst of this, they were given hope by God in spite of themselves, that they would be taken back into their land, they would return, and he would restore them and atone for their sins. And according to Isaiah, the key to this restoration, in Isaiah 53 and the other servant songs that we've been discussing, was the ultimate leader of God's people, known as the Messiah. We know him as Jesus, the Christ. And the Messiah was the one who would act on God's behalf to atone for sin, bring victory over death, And in so doing, create a new people, a family of followers that are called God's offspring. We saw this in 54, and even when uh, Marcel was here and we looked at 55 and 56, this is the message of 54 through 56. And last week we saw how this promise of godly offspring has begun. It's been inaugurated in the church. 
And it will come to completion when Christ returns to fully rule and reign on this earth. But here this morning in 56.9, we take a U-turn. It seems that Isaiah stops in the midst of all this hope and he goes back to his ways of conviction and says to us, wait a second, there's something you've got to watch out for. Yes, you have this hope of heaven. Yes, you have the hope and encouragement of being restored. But you've got to be vigilant and you've got to watch out for something. You see, there was a huge problem in the midst of God's people. God was calling them to repentance. Guys, you ever open this book and you read it? You're going to find more often than not conviction to repent. Why? Because we are sinners who need to be saved by the grace of God and transformed and changed. And so God was speaking to the people saying, you need to repent. But the people, they were being appeased and led astray by their leaders. And this was a roadblock toward holiness. And so the first thing that we will see this morning is this. You can write it down. The followers of ungodly leaders are led toward destruction. The followers of ungodly leaders are led toward destruction. Let's read there in Isaiah 56.9. All you beasts of the field... Come to devour all you beasts in the forest. Now he's speaking here to Babylon and to the foreign enemies to come and take their fill of his people. Why? Because his watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are silent dogs. They cannot bark. Dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. Isaiah provides a character study of not only the irresponsible leaders of Judah in his day, but also one that we can look to for the irresponsible leaders in our own. Now let me first start and state by unequivocally saying that any leader, myself included, can be an ungodly leader. Far greater men and women than myself have fallen into a deceived life of unrepentant sin or at least apathy. The leadership of this church, of Mission Fellowship, is definitely not immune to the temptation to become irresponsible in our leadership. And you, the people, need to hold us accountable. And we, the leaders, need to be very vigilant. So I present this to you this morning with full knowledge that the leadership of this church must be as vigilant as God was calling these people to be. We are not without excuse or with excuse. We are not people that can put this aside easily. We must pay attention to this. That being said, my hope is, and I think I'm right in saying this, that we as a leadership are trying our best to lead you in the proper way. I believe that there is a great evil among the evangelical church today. A quote has been attributed to Edmund Burke, an Irish statesman, in which he says, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And we know that there are many, many, many wonderful churches here in Salem and elsewhere in the United States and the world battling hard to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so please do not hear me as casting aspersions on all churches, but we have to also realize and know that many are being led astray by faulty theology and a feel-good, easy believism that requires nothing of sacrifice other than a fake outward morality for two hours on a Sunday morning. This is concerning because as the leaders go, so go the followers. These leaders taking their people astray are those that Isaiah calls out here. We first see them noted as blind watchmen that are unable to do the job for which they were called. You see, watchmen were very, very important in the ancient Near East. They would stand on the city walls in the towers and they would look in the distance and they would wait to see if there was any danger. And if there was an approaching army or maybe a storm, they would cry out to the city to get ready for it, ready for battle. And the moment they saw it, they would stand firm and fight with the people. 
Look at me with Eze- uh, look at me or look with me at Ezekiel. I'm going to show it to you here on the screen. Ezekiel 33 seven through nine. 33, 7 through 9. Here's what he tells Ezekiel. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Anybody want to be a pastor? But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Wow! Sounds pretty heavy, doesn't it? But notice that in this verse, the oncoming threat is not an army, but it is the sin within the people themselves. God states to the leaders, the prophets, that their very job was to compare the lifestyle of the people to God's word, and when it is found to be contrary, they are to call out the threat of destruction. Now this elicits two questions, doesn't it? The first is, is this how we view sin in our lives? As potential destruction. You know, it's amazing to me how we have so messed up the theology of sin in the United States that I will see somebody who is rejoicing in their sin, calling themselves a Christian, and a good friend or family members of theirs will go, oh, you know, they'll get out of it. It's just a phase. Oh, well, we'll just let the Holy Spirit work on them. Guys, the longer that you keep going in a given path, the more your neural pathways in your brain get entrenched. Just talk to any drug addict or alcoholic. Oh, it's okay if they have one too many drinks, two too many drinks, three too many drinks. Well, just expand that to any sin whatsoever. It's okay that they've gossiped this one time. It's okay that they've lied this one time. Guys, we have to view sin as destruction and remove it from our lives. Not become weird about this idea of being perfect, but to realize when sin occurs, it's sin in the midst of the camp and we must remove it. But secondly, the question is also this, is this part of what you view as the God-given job of the leaders within this church toward you? When you signed up to be a Christian, that means you're part of the church, so you need to attend a local church And then does that mean that you also said, hey, I volunteer for being led and pastored by the leaders of this church? And part of that means that if they see something broken in your life, they need to come to you and say something. Well, I don't like that. That sounds like sin sniffing and fault finding. Well, guys, just get rid of those ideas out of your mind. Think about it this way. Imagine if this building were on fire and I started to sniff fire, smoke. No, everybody, it's okay. Just stay put. Just stay put. The flames start engulfing around us. No, it's okay. It'll it'll get taken care of. It's all right, guys. Eventually, the sprinklers will come on. Just stay there. What would you say to me? You would say that I was a what kind of leader? Terrible. And so the flames in your life are coming up around you. And those that love you and know you, your community group leaders and those that are around you as friends in Christ and we as pastors, we see brokenness and we come to you and we say, something stinks. Well, that's legalism. No, that's love. We care more about your holiness than our friendship. We want to help save you from the brokenness in your own life. You see, a person who sees something but doesn't say anything about it is like a dog who can't even do their one job of barking when a burglar comes. That's what this is saying. It's kind of like that meme. You had one job, and it's a picture of a Rottweiler, right? With a burglar standing behind him. You had one job, just bark! And they didn't bark. And so this is what we have to ask ourselves if we are to be a healthy church. Now, I want to acknowledge that with abusive leadership, leadership that wants to be over the top of you and beat you down, this can become quickly destructive. I want to acknowledge that because many of you have come from churches where this has been the case. But if godly and accountable leadership exists that is reciprocating 
that accountability. You see, if you see something in my life that smells, don't let me burn the building down. Come talk to me. Talk to one of the other elders. This is what a healthy church looks like. Well, this begs the question, how can we know that the leaders we are submitted to are godly or godless? Responsible or irresponsible? And here we're given a number of character traits uh, that will help us understand this. There's many throughout Scripture, but here are some that we can look at today. You write these down. Characteristics of wicked leaders. This is not a full list, but this is some of it. The first thing we see here is that they're blind towards personal sin. These leaders were engaged in all sorts of debauchery and trying to just build their own kingdom, and they didn't even see it. And the Bible speaks of this as having a seared conscience when leaders are engaging in sin in their own lives and yet trying to lead a holy church or a holy group of God's chosen people. Secondly, characteristics of wicked leaders are apathetic towards sin in others. They see it and they say nothing about it. They go, oh, no big deal. Or worse yet, they get up on a Sunday many times. Guys, this is a temptation for me every Saturday night. Any of you who've ever spoken or taught in a church, you might know what I'm talking about. You stand up and you go, I want these people to like me. So I probably shouldn't give this word. (laughs) Right? Because the word is hard. It cuts between our flesh and our spirit. We don't want to be those leaders that are apathetic towards sin and others. We also don't want to beat people down and be harsh with them. We want to lovingly guide them towards Christ away from sin at all times. Another characteristic is that wicked leaders are lazy in their work ethic. Need I say much more? It dumbfounds me how some of my peers can find time for multiple games of golf a week and multiple fishing expeditions. It really does. It just dumbfounds me. Now, that doesn't mean those things are bad. It just has to be somewhere in priority. Number four, they're concerned for their own kingdom. Man, this is a temptation for me as well. What about my retirement? What about my kids' college education? Oh, we got we to do things so that I can build my kingdom. And then Jesus reminds me, Hans, why did you become a pastor? Was it for the money? Anybody who's a pastor who has their multi-million dollar mansion and their waterfront property and their toys for boys, I start to get worried about them. I think they miss the point. We're not for our own kingdom. We take this job, this calling, because we're worried about his kingdom. And lastly, they declare peace when there is no peace. I've been to many churches. I've visited many churches. And man, it's so amazing how you go in the church and listening to the pastor, often what you hear is, we're all at peace. There's no sin in the midst of our church. Let me just encourage you over and over again and uplift you over and over again. This is the K-Love version of church. I am waiting for the day where I turn on K-Love and they say, repent from your sin. (gasps) What? Right? Well, that's not marketable. No one would call in for their days-long drives to get money if it weren't positive encouraging nobody wants to hear repent from your sin well that's declaring peace when often there is no peace listen to this in jeremiah 6 13 through 15 for from the least to the greatest of them everyone is greedy for unjust gain and from the prophet to priest everyone deals falsely they have healed the wound of my people lightly saying peace peace when there is no peace Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Now again, guys, this is not me talking about them out there. This is me and us as leadership saying, are we doing this? Are we giving you peace when there is no peace? Guys, it is often my intense purpose to walk off this stage with giant heaviness in this room. It's a good thing to be uncomfortable in the powerful presence of the mighty God. And my job is not to come back up here and ease your conscience as quickly as I can and say, no, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, don't wrestle with conviction. No, every Sunday we should both be encouraged in the midst of the battle and wrestling with conviction. 
Just because a person has a platform to speak does not mean that they are sent by God if all they do is ever give peace, peace when there is no peace. We must test what is stated against God's word in its proper context. Look at Jeremiah 14, 14. And the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Guys, the reason we teach through the word chapter by chapter, verse by verse, exegetically, looking at it in context, historically and grammatically, is because I don't want to pull something out one day and twist it to how my mind sees it and present it to you. If I did that, Jeremiah 14, 14 is calling me a lying prophet. I don't want to have to stand before the Lord one day and answer for that. Why is this all so important? Why must we take the word of God in context and understand what he's saying through it? Is because as the leaders go, so go the followers. If the leaders are taking scripture out of context, wrapping it to their own designs, then the followers will as well. If the leaders take the word of God seriously in its original context, the followers will grow to do so as well. And God takes this so seriously that when he finds an apathetic church that is not obediently following Christ and his word, the word of God is clear that he would rather it close its doors than continue. Look with me. Turn your Bibles to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament before Matthew. Malachi, and we're going to be looking at a couple of sections here in Malachi 1 and 2. The priests and leaders of Judah were allowing the people to bring in the worst of the worst for their sacrifices in the temple. Blind, lame animals that showed their apathy in worship towards Christ. It's kind of like a few years ago we did a school drive. And I was dumbfounded. Some of you were just amazingly generous. You brought in like entire grocery bags full of hundreds of dollars of of school supplies. I was like, oh, praise God, man. Given of your best. That is awesome. And then we started to look through some of the bags and we found that there were like little stubs of pencils and literally notebooks that had been written on. Some of them were journals and we were like, how are we going to give this to the school, right? But that's the Christian mindset. Rummage sales. That's what we do as Christians. Let's do a rummage sale to save money. What if a church actually did something where they took all their good stuff and sold that instead? Honestly, that's more the heart of Jesus. Nothing wrong with rummage sales, but that's kind of the mentality we get into in the Western world. My kingdom is first, and I give to Jesus second. And so they were giving blind, lame animals that showed their apathy and worship towards Christ. They were saving the best for themselves and giving God the leftovers. Let's take a look here in Malachi 2, 1 through 9, and you'll see what I'm talking about. The Lord rebukes the priests here. He says, And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you did not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces. Positive encouraging. The dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. What he's saying is, is you're giving poop to me. I'm going to give you poop back. I'm actually cleaning it up here, just so you know. All right? So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. What was their sin? Were they the ones bringing the busted up animals? No. They were saying to the people, it's okay. 
I know that you're apathetic, but God is gracious. That's what they were doing. And God condemns them for it. Just say a prayer, raise your hand, it's okay. Stay in your unrepentant, sinful lifestyle. It's okay, God loves you. No, God is angry. His son died on the cross for your sin, and as a response, you stay in unrepentant sin? No. Turn away from it. So what does he tell them to do? Well, let's look backwards to chapter 1, verse 6, and we'll see what he actually prefers here. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, God says, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. By saying that God is good with apathetic lifestyle and worship. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Guys, for me to know that there is active, unrepentant sin in your life and to open the tables of communion to you, I am calling cursing upon myself and the leadership of this church. If I say nothing to you, if I don't call you to repentance. So many churches are guilty of this, and we have been one of them. Open up the tables. I don't care where people are at. It's no big deal. No, guys, when you go to the table of communion with unrepentant sin in your life, you are calling down a curse upon your head. That is the truth of this book. And God's grace is there. But remember, grace is room to repent, not room to keep on doing what you always have wanted to do. And so we must be a people that turn from our ways and embrace what God is telling us to do. One commentator on this section says this, Malachi's teaching, both negative and positive, strikes at the heart of nominal, easygoing Christianity as it did at that of Judaism. Can it be that this book is disparaged because with man is the filter through which the word must pass? It is inevitable that he will censor out what he does not wish to hear and listen to only what he is predisposed to hear. In other words, let me put it this way. Without good leaders who challenge and convict, we hear only what we want to hear. We pull out the life verses we only want to see. Well, let's go back to Isaiah and look at what he says with this idea in mind. What he tells us is that because of irresponsible leaders, justice is nowhere to be found. And so those that truly desire holiness, those that want to follow righteousness, where do they find peace? Here's what he says in Isaiah 57, 1 and 2. The only place they find it is in death. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. See, in this kind of a context where the irresponsible leaders are letting apathy run rampant in the chosen people of God, those who desire holiness and righteousness, they're the ones that are beat up on. They're the ones that are told they're wrong. And so the only place that they find peace is in death itself. It is a broken, broken system. And in Judah, the irresponsibility of the leadership had become so widespread that this was what was happening. No one was repentant and contrite before God. And so, because it is so imperative to follow those that are zealously and humbly following God, Isaiah continues with a picture that is contrasted against the spiritual offspring we saw in Isaiah 53 and 54. We're going to see now the spiritual offspring of those that are not of the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
And so as we go into this, we must ask ourselves a question. We as the church must do this. Write this down. As spiritual offspring, we must examine who we follow. We must examine who we follow. Because as the leaders go, so go the followers. Guys, is it any wonder? Well, let me ask you a question. When you choose to have someone's Instagram account show up in your feed, what are you then called? You are called their follower. Makes you really think about who's in your social media accounts, doesn't it? You are their follower. You will mimic them. You will follow them. We must examine who we follow. Let's take a look there in Isaiah 53 or 57.3. In contrast to the righteous, the offspring of the Messiah, he says this to the offspring of the adulterer, the offspring of the adulterous leader. But you draw near sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Remember, this is a metaphor for those who are playing religion with other gods and not allegiant to Yahweh. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you've poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set your memorial for deserting me. You have uncovered your bed, you have gone up to it, and you have made it wide. You have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed, and you have looked on nakedness. Now, guys, to get an understanding of how heavy Isaiah is being and how convicting he is being, those of you with the NASB, that word nakedness is actually a little bit better. It's called manhood. But he gets almost grotesquely graphic here. He says that the adulteress is desiring, if you will, the manhood of the man she's about to be adulterous with. In the innate Hebrew, that's what it says. He's not trying to be clean and pure and polite here. He's saying, you are being adulterous. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. Wow. Doesn't have much to say that's good, does he? In the midst of Judah, God's grace was being taken for granted. It is the current day equivalent of a person saying that since they prayed a prayer or they were baptized, that God will obviously forgive their current unrepentant lifestyle. The people of Judah were continuing in a fake version of following Yahweh, still walking through the motions, but they had also begun mixing in a lifestyle of choices that showed they were not actually allegiant to Yahweh at all, but were following the idols surrounding Judah. So we looked at the characteristics of wicked leaders. Let's take a look at the characteristics of wicked followers for a second. First thing they do is they follow known idolaters. They follow known idolaters. I have a new phrase I've come up with, which is this. Mutual agreed upon blackmail. Mutual agreed upon blackmail. Here's what it means. If I go to a church where the pastor lives an apathetic lifestyle towards Jesus, that's good for me because then he can't hold me accountable to my apathetic lifestyle for Jesus. If I go to a church that's apathetic, then I can sit in my apathy. And so people go to churches where they follow known idolaters. Guys, I'm sorry to have to call it out, but why is the largest church in our nation Joel Osteen's church? That's a sad state of affairs. The man is an absolute idolater. He teaches a false gospel and he builds his own kingdom. I mean, literally, the Babylon Bee, which is a satire, had a picture of him standing on his yacht sailing through the floodwaters of Houston with, on the side, your best life now, right? Or be blessed. 
I mean, why is that church so full of people? Mutual agreed upon blackmail. He gets his best life now. That means I get my best life now. As the leaders go, so go the followers. Second thing is, is they mock those desiring holiness. Be careful if you ever hear the words coming out of your mouth. That's legalistic. I have never, ever, 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 ever in my entire time in ministry heard somebody use that in the appropriate context. What they're usually saying when they use that phrase is, you desire to follow Jesus more zealously than I do. That's what they're usually saying. You've put boundaries in your life, that's good for you. I don't have any boundaries. You're just legalistic. Well, no, guys, that's what it is to follow Christ. Is to place boundaries of his holiness, his call upon our lives, into our lives. Third, just like these people here in Judah, they worship at the altar of Baal and Ashtaroth. It says, Are you not children of transgression, you who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys? These were all things that they did, sexual orgies and killing of their children on the molten arms of Molech and Baal. Well, who is Baal and Ashtaroth? We're not worshiping them, are we? Well, Baal was the god that you worshipped for success and money, and Ashtaroth was who you worshipped for fertility and sexuality. The two largest idols in the midst of the American mind. Man, if you are a person that is building your kingdom financially and unable to be generous because, well, you just can't eke it out because of all your bills, and you're making tons of money, you got to wonder, are you worshiping at the altar of Baal? And if you're a person who dismisses your sexual brokenness, are you a person who worships at the altar of Ashtaroth? Success, comfort, sexuality, these things, we have to fight against them every day in our culture. Number four, they give offerings to these same gods. Is your time, talents, and treasure going to the worship of these gods as opposed to going to the kingdom of the Lord or provision for your family? I know it's sad. It is sad. All right, number five. And lastly, they dismiss conviction when it comes. They dismiss conviction when it comes. Guys, if you have in your brain that a good Christian church is one that you always feel good leaving, <laughs> you have the wrong understanding of what a church should be. If you think a church should be one that you always leave depressed and broken, that is also the wrong statement of what a church should be. But there should be a healthy mix in any church that is preaching the word of God, because this is the mix in the word of God, of being encouraged in the hopefulness of heaven, the hopefulness of God's kingdom, and also being convicted in the brokenness that surrounds us and is within us. And in the context of what was said this morning, about the leaders, let's take a look at Isaiah 57.10 and see what he says there. He says, You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. These people reached the end of themselves. They went, This isn't working. This is broken. And somehow they found new strength. And I would hazard a guess that it could be because their leaders were saying, oh, don't worry about it. Guys, how many times have I said that? How many times have you said that? When someone comes to you and says, gosh, I'm really struggling with this conviction. I think the Lord is telling me to do something. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. It's, it's okay. We're saying peace, peace when there is no peace. Instead of saying, absolutely, yes, you should repent. God is correct. But we often do that because we don't want them to feel bad. Well, Jesus felt pretty bad when he took their sin on the cross. And so God responds to their wickedness by asking them who they follow. Where is their allegiance and loyalty? Take a look at verse 11 there. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me and did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds. See, they were doing good things but they will not profit you. Why? Because they weren't allegiant to Jesus, to, to Yahweh. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. 
Why does he say this? Because they have led their whole life trusting in their idols and their works rather than trusting the Lord. The Lord God is convicting his people of the fact that while they claim to follow him with their mouths, their lives reflect allegiance to the idols more so than him. Alec J. Motier, uh, one of the foremost Isaiah commentators, I've quoted him before, he says this, Isaiah's penetrating diagnosis reveals that more is needed than the forgiveness of sins before the people of God can call themselves saved. There are forces of wrong of many kinds that need to be dealt with and removed, enticements to error as well as actual threats to life itself, which create an environment harmful to godliness. This is why the ESV renders 1 Corinthians 15 correctly when it says we are in the process of being saved. It is correct to say your salvation began at a point and you are in the process of being saved. The people had not concluded that they were no longer the offspring of God, but rather the offspring of Satan himself and all the idols that bear his reflection. They had not examined who they follow. And lest we dismiss this word of conviction as something that was just for them, let us remember the words of Christ to the people of his day that thought they were better than their ancestors because they were the chosen people of God. Let's take a look at John 8 here. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. Remember, guys, how did Jesus say that we show that we love him? If you love me, you will what? Follow my commands. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. See, they wanted to turn Jesus into the scapegoat. He was merely speaking the word of God to them, and they went, oh, that is too convicting. I don't like it. God's supposed to be more fun than that. Jesus must be wrong. They believed they were God's chosen people, but Jesus asked them, who do you follow? Now, all of this can lead to a bit of anxiety. Who do I follow, you might be asking? Well, here's the key, guys. The key is to look to Jesus. Because as the leaders go, so go the followers. So who do we want our leader to be? At the core of our faith is the most selfless and generous leader that has ever existed. He is our leader because he came from the Father. He modeled for us what the kingdom of heaven is like in restoring righteousness and justice for the three years that he ministered. He gave his life as a sinless sacrifice, atoning for our sin by dying on the cross. And he rose after three days proving victory over death, hell, and Satan himself. And then he ascended on high as our king and leader. And this is the good news And we are called to respond to him by following him. You can write this down. Both leaders and followers must ultimately follow Jesus. Both leaders and followers must ultimately follow Jesus. Let's take a look at 5714. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. Verse 18, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. 
But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Now you might ask where I see Jesus here. Well, this is God speaking and telling his people that he wishes to dwell with them and that he is ready to forgive and heal. And the people of Judah, they simply kept backsliding in the way of their own heart, refusing to repent. And for them, there will never be peace. But for those that are contrite in heart, lowly in spirit, God says there is hope. As New Covenant believers, we know that this hope is found by accepting the gift of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and submitting to his kingship in our lives. Jesus is the way spoken of there in verse 14 who removes all obstructions from our paths. He's the one that is high and lifted up on the cross as our king crowned with the crown of thorns. He's the one who inhabits eternity with the Father God, the ancient of days, and is the express image of his holiness in human form. Jesus is the one that by the gift of his Holy Spirit dwells in you and in me and amongst us, his people, the church. And for those that are, there, the, those that are his, he speaks these words. I have seen your ways, but I will heal you. I will lead you and restore comfort to you that mourn because of your sin. I will help you to create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to you that were far but are brought near. What is required of us that need to repent? The wicked that want to become God's offspring. What does it mean to become contrite and lowly in spirit? I don't often use that with my son. Time to be contrite. We don't use it often in our language, but this is shorthand that describes being broken by our own sin. Now, clarification, not condemned. Broken by our own sin. Understanding its destructive force and confessing that we are idolaters, that we have submitted to the idols of comfort, success, and sexuality above following God alone. But it's more than this too. We're going to spend a great deal of time in Isaiah 58 uh, when we do Freedom Sunday. But let's just look at a couple of examples of what God was calling them to repent from. I'm going to go through these quickly. Take a look at Isaiah 58, 3 through 5. Why have we fasted and you see it not, they said to God. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure, God says, and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? In other words, just kind of falling down and going, oh, Jesus, every Sunday, that's not being humble and contrite. Having those moments where you're listening to a worship song and going, oh, I'm sorry again for the bazillionth time on the same sin I refuse to repent of. That is not being contrite. That's what he's saying here. This is not the fast that I choose. What is the fast that he chooses? We'll see that in a second. Let's look at 13 and 14 as another example of what they need to repent from. Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day. Hello, Labor Day. And call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. Guys, I I have to be the guy that says it because I'm the one that has to speak the word. Do you make the Sabbath about when it's convenient for you? Do you show up only when you want to? Or do you kind of make your schedule about having something better on hand? Well, I've got something that's going to be really pleasurable. And Hans, I know where he's going today. Isaiah 57, that's not going to be pleasurable. What this is saying is if you make the Sabbath about your pleasure over and above making it his day, you are not in a good spot. That's not me saying it, guys. Don't turn me into the scapegoat here. That's the very word of God. What they were doing was they were making life about their own pleasure and then when they felt a little bit bad about it, they were going back to Jesus and going, oh, please forgive me, please forgive me, please forgive me, and then going about and doing it again. There was no change in their life. They were using religious ritual to counter the unrepentant sin in their lives. 
One good act to negate a bad act. But that's not what we were called to be. What they were called to be was people who gave their lives completely and ultimately, like Jesus, to worship God the Father and declare with their mouths and, more importantly, their lives that we are not our own, but we serve at the pleasure of our King, Jesus. They were to follow His image. You see, if Jesus came to be sacrificial and generous and die for the people that hated him. If he came to restore justice and righteousness and he is the leader that we follow as the leaders go, what's the rest of it? So go the followers. It dumbfounds me how we think we can call ourselves followers of Jesus if he was sacrificial so we don't have to be. If he died so I don't have to. If he restored righteousness and justice so I can be about my kingdom. We're not following him. Ergo... Who are we following? Go ahead and say it out loud. Satan. That's what this is saying. To follow in the image of Jesus is what we'll see in chapter 58. Take a look, for example. Here's a precursor. Look at verses 6 and 7. Is this not the fast that I choose, God says? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Verse 10, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. Malia had a wonderful idea during the luau. We had a ton of food left over and she said, hey, I brought these uh, to-go boxes. Let's say we throw all this in, put it together, and go out and hand it to homeless people. And, you know, we talked about it, and we decided we were going to go down to the park by First Baptist. Now, you can say whatever you want about the homeless people that are down there. Some of them are there by their own choice. Some of them are there for not their own choice. But I'll tell you what, I was dumbfounded because I I read about this fast, and, and it was weighing heavily on my mind. And we walked out there with the boxes, and we stood there, and it was like bees to honey. Now, standing outside of that, I've seen that before, and I'll, I have to confess to you that I've thought, oh, geez, they're enabling. But just a, a secondary interaction with these people made me go, no, they're hungry. I am a horrible person. My heart is so dark and sinful. I, I don't understand why I haven't figured this out before. And I was convicted. These people were hungry. You see, there's so much that we can do in our lives that we refuse to do because we're too busy about our own stuff. And I stand in that same convicted group as you do. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, we have to read the Gospels and not go, boy, that was good for him. We have to read it and go, wow. Jesus says, touch your nose. Jesus says, put your hands in the air. Jesus says, feed the homeless. Jesus says, love one another. That's what we're called to do. And this is what we, those of us that are truly leaders in the church, must declare to all that will listen. Take a look back at Isaiah 58.1. At the end of all the 57, God laying it hard on the people, he says to them, guys, you can have peace. And who does he task? He says, cry aloud, verse 1 of 58. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Guys, I know that there are many of you in here that are working hard in life in response to the grace of Jesus Christ. And I want today to encourage you for this reason You shouldn't be made fun of for being zealous. You shouldn't be looked down upon because you are trying to put boundaries in your life to follow Jesus. There are those of us in this room that want to co-labor with you in that activity. And I hope you're encouraged by that. For those of you that might not be in that group, but you realize today, man, I do whatever I want whenever I want. I'm about building my kingdom. I tithe when it's okay and I have a little extra money. I come to church when I have a little extra time. I love people when I feel like doing it. I don't when I don't. For you, you need to hear this today. This is not me speaking. This is the very voice of God saying, I beg of you, repent. 
22 times in the Gospels, Jesus uses the phrase, follow me, akalutheo. And it means, come in the way with me. Follow with me. Co-labor with me in the way that I am going. And Jesus inaugurated as king is about the business of his father through his people, bringing about justice and pointing to the love of the father in all we do. And so to follow him is to be about the same business. It's not just to take his forgiveness, his life insurance for the day of judgment. To follow Jesus is to co-labor, giving your life even as Jesus did. As leaders, so go the followers. And this is why Paul stated to the churches he planted, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We must repent from going our own way and following Jesus and his way. And so today I want to beg of us as a church to do this. Last major point here. Let us, the leaders and the followers of Mission Fellowship, Commit to assisting one another in following Christ. Let us, the leaders and followers of Mission Fellowship, commit to assisting one another in following Christ. In no way, shape, or form do I want you to sit here today and think, oh man, Hans is mad at me. Honestly, I don't even know. I can't look out here and see little neon signs that say, convicted, not convicted, right? But if the Lord is speaking to your heart today, I want you to understand that this is what he calls all of us to do, regardless of our place in this body, our role as a member of the body. We have spent the entire summer as leaders trying to refocus and help one another understand how important our job is to lead you. And that's why we're rebuilding our community groups. The leaders of every community group will be deacons and deaconesses, and they will be replicating by taking on the discipleship of everyone within their small group, as well as one particular couple in order, or singles, in order to build up a, uh, another group of elders or of deacons and deaconesses to replicate groups. The church that does not build its leadership through training is an unfaithful church, and I was convicted of that this year. But it's not just us leaders that need to commit to doing this. We also need your help. Perhaps you're a leader that will step up in the future, or perhaps right now you're just merely a congregant. That doesn't make you lesser then. It almost makes you more important then because we as your leaders are called to serve you. And so I share with you this. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says this. Obey your leaders and then submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Some of us that have gone through any kind of authoritarian environment hear this as submit or else. How many of you hear this verse that way? Go ahead, raise your hand. It's okay. Yeah. But another way to put it is this. The best leaders are made by those that support them, follow them, assume the best about them, encourage them, and hold them accountable to godly standards. For those of us in leadership now, and for those who feel called to lead at some point in the future, we need your help. It's a really terrible game of Simon Says if I do this. Watch. Hans says, touch your nose. Okay, and the game's pretty much over because nobody's doing it. Right? (laughs) See what I'm saying? Okay, guys, let's be holy. It's going to be a terrible game of Jesus says, right? We need your help. But for those of us in leadership that are sitting here today, I also want to say to you that we should not expect anyone to follow us if we are not walking humbly as best as we can in the way of Christ. And I want to quote for you, the leadership in this room and those that feel called to eventually be in leadership, I want to quote for you the great Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane. He said this very simply, the greatest need of my people is my own holiness. The people in our congregation of Mission Fellowship need our ministry, but they need our holiness more. 
You might be the most charismatic leader in the business world that's ever existed. And that's honestly what a lot of churches pull into their leaderboard because they need help running the finances. But what we want in the leadership of this church is people who model what it is to walk with Christ. And so today, don't hear me as beating you down. Hear me as begging all of us to join in the call and commit to this call of being a people that commit to assisting one another in following Christ. We must be a people with an understanding that the kingdom of God is seen in mutual, humble, and loving submission to one another and to our leaders with the ultimate goal of reflecting the holiness of the Lord. And guys, if that is done in a healthy environment where the leaders are healthy, I can tell you from the last two and a half months of sitting there amidst our leadership group and submitting myself to them, I have gotten some of the best feedback and encouragement and ideas that we've had in six years of this church running. And I am so excited to see what the Lord will do with your deacons and your elders and your deaconesses. I'm excited to see what God's going to do in these small groups. And so I want to call each one of us this morning. I want you to think through if this is you or not. Are you covenanting in submission to Christ and covenanting in submission to one another? That's the point of application this morning. Are you covenanting in submission to Jesus Christ and covenanting in submission to one another? And if not, what will it take for you to do so? Let us pray through this week to see if we are individually and corporately as a church one that can truly say we are offspring of the Lord Most High following after him with everything we have.